0: Hello, and welcome to episode 33. In this episode, we're going to explain some of the basics of artificial intelligence, the technology. So you have a useful understanding of how some of it works. No code, no special computer knowledge required here. I'm going to explain it from a layman's point of view, and we're going to drill down into neural networks in particular. That's where we're going. And we're going to do that without pictures. It usually takes pictures. I use pictures when I talk about this in my course. So I'm going to have to draw this with words. Let's see how well I can do that. Now, to set the context for this properly, I'm going to have to go back a ways in the history of artificial intelligence and computer programming. If you've seen any computer code, you know that by and large it looks like a series of instructions and rules. It's what we call imperative programming. If this is true, then do that, and so forth. We load up variables which are names for pieces of storage with various values. We manipulate them arithmetically or logically, etc. There's a close equivalence between this type of programming and mathematics, specifically algebra and the manipulation of symbols. Now you're probably glad that there aren't any visuals to go along with this. Don't worry, I wouldn't do that to you anyway. So this is what we call symbolic manipulation. And way back in the day, and you may have heard me refer to the 1956 Dartmouth Conference on Artificial Intelligence, where the term was first developed, it was believed that this was the way to create thinking machines with this kind of code. I talked some about this with Pamela McCorduck, the historian of artificial intelligence, when she was on the show. Computer programmers were full of hubris at the time. They had initial exposure to the first high-level computer programming languages and thought that it was simply a matter of breaking down what humans do when they think into smaller and smaller chunks, and they already knew how they could build up large programs from smaller and smaller chunks. Unfortunately, it turned out to be a lot harder than that. But what they were doing there was what's called good old-fashioned AI, or GOFAI. You may see those initials somewhere, G-O-F-A-I. And that's the idea that we can figure things out by that kind of straightforward classical imperative computer programming with the code that you write explicitly yourself by hand. That grew in the 80s into the use of languages like Prologue, which is not quite so explicitly imperative, but it is designed for handling rules, where you say different assertions about the world, like the classical syllogism, Socrates is a man, men are mortal. And then the system can conclude, Socrates is mortal. And the idea was that if you built up enough of these assertions about things you knew, then it could figure out things that you didn't know that would be useful. But you're still programming it explicitly, and they ran into the limitations of that. And it very much doesn't work for the kind of things we do that are what Daniel Kahneman called system one thinking, intuitive pattern recognition, like face recognition, or driving a car is actually both systems. So the other system of thinking that Kahneman came up with, which he called, guess what, system two, is logical deduction. That's what GOFI is all about. Driving a car is an example of something that uses both systems. And in fact, your activities as you get better at driving shift from one to another. The first time that you learned to drive a car, you had to explicitly understand how to move the steering wheel, use the brake pedals, and change gears. You were thinking about all of those things. But as you learned, those things moved into system one type of thinking. You just thought about where you wanted to go and your hands did the rest automatically. Then you push more and more activities into system one type thinking as you habituate yourself to them and learn how to perform them instinctively. Have you ever had the experience of driving between two places that were both familiar, like you're going to work and you get there and you think, how did I get here? I was thinking about something completely different all the way, and I have no memory of the trip or the decisions I make. And it can be kind of scary at times to think that you were that absent. Well, don't worry. That was system one thinking happening. And if there had been something that needed your attention, like a squirrel running out in front of the road, it would have alerted you and the system two type thinking would have taken over. But you would have also had the benefit of the instinctive reaction of slamming on the brakes. That's something that would have been part of your system one thinking from your early training in driving a car. But take the classic system one thinking example of facial recognition. This cannot be solved by GoFi because you don't know how you recognize faces. You can't explain it. You can't write down rules for how you recognize faces that you know. You might try, you might come up with some sort of decision tree and say things like uh, female with jowls and crown equals Queen Victoria, Uh, wart on nose plus crooked teeth equals witch from Snow White, Uh, orange face plus comb over equals Donald Trump, and think that you're on a roll, but eventually realize that's just not going to work for all of the faces that you know and you don't know how to recognize faces. Well, neither does anyone else. So if it were true that computers could only do what we program them to do, then they would not be able to recognize faces because we don't know how to write down instructions for that. And the imperative, go-fi, symbolic, rule-manipulation programming couldn't do it. So how is it that we now have computers that can recognize faces better than people can? Let's look at what came next in computer science. Now we have a new term, machine learning, which is a way of programming computers that can learn how to get better at some particular task. That's separated into three kinds of learning. Supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. So the difference between those is that supervised learning is one where you give it lots of examples of solved problems. Here is a face, and here's the name of the person it belongs to. Here's another face, here's the name of the person it belongs to. Here's that face from a different angle and the same name. And on and on and on, many, many, many examples. And supervised learning means that it learns then how to recognize faces that it hasn't seen the picture of before, but it does have the name. Unsupervised learning is where you feed a whole lot of associated data in and ask it to make associations. One of the very interesting examples of this that was done a couple of years ago was that Medical researchers fed an unsupervised learning system a whole bunch of images of human retinas, the thing at the back of your eyeball, and metadata, data about the person the eyeball belonged to. Things like how old they were, what their gender was, their history of smoking, other things that they thought would be relevant to images of retina and whatever else they knew about the person, where they were from, and so forth. And then they let the unsupervised learning loose on this and said, show us what is correlated in this. Well, as they were expecting or hoping, it did show correlations between retinal images and smoking, for instance, which meant that the network learned how to recognize someone's smoking history to some degree of probability from seeing just a picture of their retina. But it also learned something that they didn't suspect, which was, the person's gender. That meant that the system learned how to predict someone's gender, whether they're male or female, to 97% accuracy from looking at their retinal image. Now, even when the researchers saw this, understood it, and went back and looked at the pictures themselves, they weren't able to tell the gender of the people themselves to better than chance. So they don't know how the system learned how to do it, but it did. Obviously, there are easier ways of telling someone's gender than looking in the back of their eyeball. That's not the point. The point was that the system here created new knowledge because until that point, no one had suspected that there was a correlation, a link between someone's retinal pattern and their gender. Now there is. What does that mean? Who knows? That's a subject for research. But now the research is enabled by this finding that has come out of the unsupervised learning. And the third kind of machine learning is reinforcement learning. And that's when you take a system that is able to respond to feedback. Basically, you're going to pat it on the head, say, good boy, and give it a biscuit every time it does something right. In practice, that amounts to increasing the value of some number that we call an utility function that says it's done what you want it to. One example of that could be training a robot to pick up packages, say that it's going to be used in a warehouse. So you start out giving it very little ability. Of course, it's going to flail around, knock packages all over the place, and it doesn't get any reward. But when it accidentally manages to do something useful, something that's right in some fashion, you give it a bone. And if you do this enough times, it learns. This is kind of a Skinnerian behavioral stimulation here. It learns what you want, and it does more of it, and it gets good at it. Self-driving cars can be trained through a lot of reinforcement learning done in simulations. Not so much in real-world situations because the prospect of the car going haywire and mowing people down and not getting its reward is not a very viable training scenario. But if you can train them in situations where the penalty for failure is something you can tolerate, then reinforcement will work in the real world as well. Okay, so that's the three kinds of machine learning. What kind of system can do that? This is where neural networks come in. Artificial neural networks, because the non-artificial ones are the ones sitting on top of your neck. As you might guess, they are modeled on the human brain, which has lots of neurons hooked up together in neural networks. We have about 100 billion neurons, which are obviously tiny little cells, hooked up to on average a thousand other neurons at a time, which gives us a hundred trillion connections or so in the human brain. That's a lot. And looking at the human brain in these tiny cells, researchers saw that they were exchanging signals, that they would light up in some way and receive signals from their neighbors and pass signals along to other neighbors in this sort of cascade. So the thinking was, maybe this is how we do system one type thinking and all the other kinds of thinking that go on in the human brain. But maybe it's an emergent phenomenon of all of these signals being passed around between these almost countless number of neurons. So they said, let's build machine versions of those. And they created these neural networks that were artificial where each neuron is an abstraction, which meant that it was implemented using the classic symbolic computer code as a variable pointing to one tiny piece of storage with some behavior associated with it. Now the groundwork for this was laid in the 60s and the programming of it started in the 70s and these were called perceptrons and the very early ones had two what are called layers They were separated into an input layer, which is a set of artificial neurons, and an output layer. The input layer would receive the question or the problem, and the output layer would receive the result or the answer. Unfortunately, things languished for quite a while because Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert wrote a book called Perceptrons where they talked about these two-layer networks and proved that they couldn't solve one of the simplest problems in computer science which you would need, at a very minimum, any kind of neural network to be able to solve. So people gave up on this for quite a while, as in about a decade Now, Minsky and Papert did not say anything about networks that would have more than two layers, but no one thought about that for a long time until it was pointed out that if you add a layer in between the input and the output layers and connect these artificial neurons up, that it can solve that basic problem, and thereby it can solve any problem, or at least there was no problem that you could prove it couldn't solve. Great, so now research in neural networks took off. The thing that limited the expansion and utility of it at this point was that we still didn't have the number one hardware and number two data to be able to build neural networks that ran fast enough and could be trained to do useful things. And it wasn't until after 2005 or so where both of those things started being true that we had fast enough computers that could store enough nodes, and we had the data to train the networks on. And this is where the term deep learning started to come into vogue. Deep learning is something that was done with a Google offshoot, now called DeepMind, where they started making really big networks with a lot of layers in between. The deep adjective refers to having a lot of intermediate layers. And to get them to do something useful, like recognizing faces, you had to give them a lot of examples. And hard as it is to believe now, at that time in history, there was not a lot of data available for training the research versions of these networks. And this is where Fei-Fei Li at Stanford came in, in a pivotal contribution to creating something that's called ImageNet, which is a publicly available database of many, many images that have been tagged so that we know what they represent. That gives us the ability to do supervised learning. In order to create that, they actually had to employ people using Amazon's Mechanical Turk service, which paid people small amounts of money for doing small tasks, in this case, saying what each image contained. Fun fact, one of the first things that neural networks learned how to recognize in images was cats, because where else would we get these images from but postings that were being made on the beginnings of social media on the internet, and what did most people post? Pictures of cats. So let's look at the architecture of a typical neural network While the human brain has a hundred billion neurons, the usual artificial neural network doesn't have or need that many. The number that it does need is highly dependent upon the type of task and may vary from hundreds to millions. But it's organized, as I said, into layers. And the first layer is the input layer. And this is a critical thing to get right because you have to map each node in the input layer to an input from your problem. So if you're doing image recognition, that's straightforward. You map each node to a pixel in your image, or perhaps a group of pixels that are in some kind of moving window. And the output layer has nodes that are mapped to what you want to say. If you are doing handwriting recognition, then you may have 26 nodes, one for each letter. Choosing the right mapping from your problem to your input layer and from your output layer to your results is one of the most critically difficult things to do in creating a neural network to solve a problem. And then in between, you have hidden layers that are connected through many connections, just like the human brain's neurons, to each of the layers on either side. So each artificial neuron has many connections to nodes on the input side of the network that feed its signals and nodes on the output side of the network to which it sends signals. Now I've talked about nodes and connections and signals here as though they're real things like they are in the human brain, but actually those are just names we give to the way that the network works, which in a computer is just shuffling data around in a program. The program models the behavior that I've just described of nodes and layers and connections and signals, but ultimately you don't see any of those things in the computer. It just stores things in registers and storage locations in RAM and changes them. But in order to work right, your typical supervised learning network has to have many, many examples. To train it to recognize images of some kind, you might need 100,000 or more images as examples. And all of that processing takes a lot of computer power. This is where GPUs, or graphic processing units, came into play. You see, the video display cards inside your computer, the ones that drive the display, are actually quite powerful at parallel processing because they have to populate the pixels on the screen with values and keep them updated. So they're already optimized for performing a lot of operations on floating point numbers at the same time, which is exactly what you need in executing one of these neural networks. Because just like in the human brain, the signals travel between nodes at the same time. So the input layer nodes light up all at the same time according to the pixel values that they're being given, and then they transmit values to the next layer all at the same time, and so forth. And it was discovered that using graphic processing units, the kind that you have on your video card, can do these kind of calculations much better than the ordinary computer processor. So the AIs were rewritten to compile to running on the GPUs. So I've talked about training and execution. Let me get specific about that. First of all, let's consider the neural network after it has already been trained and you're running it. Now, each of these nodes in the network has a very special property. It contains a number which we call a weight. And each node in the network has a different weight. This, again, is modeled on the human brain. When it receives a combination of signals from the nodes on its input side, it applies a relatively simple mathematical function to them, adding them and multiplying them by the weight to get a result. And based on that result, it decides what signals it sends to its output side nodes. The equivalent function in the human brain is called the activation potential. If the combination of the input signals plus the magic number that is stored in the cell, which we call the weight in the artificial network, is such that it exceeds the activation potential, then it sends signals to its output nodes. In an artificial neural network, that is called the activation function. So it's looking like it works just like the human brain. Eventually, you have combinations of signals being sent by these weights being set, and the result triggers one or more particular nodes in the output layer that equate to the answer you want. So you can kind of see how it does this. It's magic box. Every one of these numbers is magically chosen to give you the right result. But we can't use magic to create these, so how do we get those weights into the network? And the answer is a tool called backpropagation. And this is where you have the training phase. So you give the network an image, and then you tell it that you know what the answer is. So you constrain the answer at the output nodes. And then you propagate backwards up the network a little bit of the answer. In other words, you're running the network backwards. And perturb the weights, which you start out with random numbers, in each node, a little bit towards what would give you the right answer. And then you have to lather, rinse, repeat, do this over and over again, each time perturbing the weights a little bit more towards what the right answer is going to be. For you mathematicians out there, this is essentially solving the problem of finding local or hopefully global minima in a multi-dimensional space. And this training phase requires a lot of data and a lot of execution. This is where AI neural networks use a significant amount of the world's electricity. So any research that turns up ways of improving the amount of power that's needed to do training are very valuable. So that's how neural networks work. But are they really working the same way as the human brain? We know through people poking things into people's brains and other things that neuroscientists like Ryan Darcy, who was on the show a while ago, do, that we can find neurons or cells in the human visual system, for instance, that react to the eye seeing, say, a diagonal line. So the eye is doing edge detection, it's very good at that. And then it has some cells that will react to horizontal lines, some to vertical ones, some to diagonal ones. These are obviously important in understanding what we're looking at. And then further up the network, these signals are combined to recognize increasingly complex features. Maybe it sees an eye, maybe it sees a mouth, maybe those get put together and now it knows a cat or a person or a hedgehog. Well, it turns out that when you train a neural network, an artificial one, to do image recognition, that you can find nodes in the network that have learned how to recognize diagonal lines. They've done edge detection, for instance. So it would seem on the face of it that this network is operating the same way that the human brain does. Well, not so fast. It may be operating the same way in respect of diagonal lines, but there is a lot of territory between there and recognizing, say, Jennifer Aniston. And the reason I use that example is that it was actually found that people's brains, of brains belonging to people that knew who Jennifer Aniston, the actress, was, they could locate a neuron that responded to them seeing Jennifer Aniston. I know it sounds awful lot like stalking here, but Google for Jennifer Aniston neuron and you'll see what I'm talking about. It became rather notorious because not only did it light up when they saw a picture of Jennifer Aniston, but even when they were thinking about her. And obviously the output of an artificial neural network that is doing facial recognition is going to be something like, this is Jennifer Aniston. So again, it looks like they're working the same way. Again, not so fast. Why? It turns out that they're actually rather brittle in the ways that they do this. They have, for instance, what's called the Picasso problem, which is that you can do something to them that makes the images look like a Picasso painting. You can swap the eye and the mouth, for instance. And the image recognition algorithm will still come up with the same result. In fact, in some cases, it says it's even more likely to be who it thought in the first place. That doesn't make sense. What it should say is... This is some kind of weird non human image that you've messed with. That wasn't one of the things that it was trained on. It did learn how to recognize features eyes, noses, and lips and things that, when put together in the right places, equal Jennifer Aston or whoever it's looking at. But the artificial network hasn't learned to care about them being in the right places. So that's a problem. It gets worse. Researchers who know what they're doing can add what looks to us like indetectable noise to a picture that completely changes the interpretation of it. So you can have an image that's, say, classified by the network as 87% likely to be a possum. You can change it in a way that makes invisible changes as far as humans are concerned. And now it says it's 97% likely to be a giraffe. This is obviously pretty bad. And you can find some of that technique being used in things that you can buy to, for instance, offset facial recognition algorithms. You can buy t-shirts that will cause facial recognition algorithms to fail when looking at you. They're not even obscuring your face. So how does the trick of adding the noise that's invisible to the picture work? Well, of course, it's not totally invisible, uh, but it's noise that our eyes ignore because it's just changing pixels here and there. But they're carefully chosen by these researchers to be ones that they have found matter a lot to the image recognition algorithm. And so they start out with the picture of the possum, but then they add selected pixels that are important to the recognition of a giraffe until the result is giraffe. Now, obviously, our visual systems, human visual systems, don't work the same way. We are not dependent upon individual pixels in the image being really important in some degree to whether it's a giraffe or a possum. But these recognition algorithms are. This has huge consequences not just for facial recognition, image tagging, but also self-driving vehicles. There are examples of stop signs that have had a few strips of black and white tape added in strategic locations, which to you or I would look like just some small amount of odd pixelated kind of graffiti added to the sign. Nothing that would get you out of a ticket for running it, but which change its interpretation to the algorithm that is looking at it from stop sign to yield sign or 45-mile-an-hour speed limit sign. Obviously, this is a serious problem, and it is being tackled. There is something called a capsule network, invented by Jeffrey Hinton, who is a giant in the field of neural networks. It's inspired by the microcolumns that we have in the human cortex. Cortical microcolumns are groupings of neurons that are connected together, and it actually gets around, for instance, the viewpoint variance issue which is the problem that you can take an image of a person that the network recognizes, turn it upside down, and now it has no clue that it's even a person, let alone who it is. Whereas a human would say that's so-and-so standing on their head. Which does suggest, by the way, that if you want to go through a city like London that's teeming with closed-circuit TV cameras and facial recognition algorithms that you can pass through invisibly if you walk on your hands, might have other problems with that approach. And ultimately, it might be futile because if they start using capsule networks, then they won't care that you're upside down. Another kind of deep learning model is called the transformer. It handles sequential data like language, text, things that we say. But it can process it in parallel, which means that it can pass kind of a sliding window over the text to decide what it means. Now, the most famous example of a transformer is GPT-3 and its predecessor GPT-2, where the GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Now, GPT-2 came out from OpenAI and was so revolutionary that OpenAI did not want to release the source code to begin with, which was kind of a big deal because the whole point of OpenAI being created That consortium, that organization, was to release source code of the AI that it developed. Eventually they did, of course. And GPT-2 pulled off all kinds of feats of natural language processing. It had 1.5 billion parameters in it. Then they built GPT-3, which had 175 billion parameters in it. That was trained... By passing it a large amount of the internet, all of Wikipedia and many other pages besides, the end result was that it learned a lot of associations between the text that it found, such that, for instance, it had read many, many, many recipes. And you could say, tell me another recipe, and it would make one up that was quite plausible. Anyway... That's some of the state of the art in artificial neural networks, and we've got a long way to go yet in exploring the space of what they can do. In today's headline, ripped from the news about artificial intelligence, more than a thousand scanners powered by AI are monitoring how close pedestrians get to each other in London, Manchester, and other British cities to supply the government with data on social distancing. The sensors were initially intended to track the flow of traffic, cyclists, and walkers to work out how roads were being used, but after the lockdown in March, they were fitted with a new feature so they could tell how well people were obeying the social distancing guidelines. Now, obviously this has Big Brother written all over it, and in the United Kingdom, cameras are everywhere, so in that respect, Big Brother is not a huge leap. But the manufacturer, Vivacity, said that the data is used to inform policy decisions and, in response to privacy concerns, said that none of the footage is saved, streamed, or used for enforcement purposes. They have added sensors in Oxford, Cambridge, and Nottingham. And by using this ability to see how much people are distancing, they can decide whether the guidelines should be one meter, two meters, or so forth. Because now you're able to actually know what distancing practices are actually being followed, and you can correlate that with infection rates and decide whether you need to change your guidelines. On next week's episode, Professor Michael Wooldridge is the head of the Department of Computer Science at Oxford University in the United Kingdom, and he is the author of the Ladybird Expert Guide to Artificial Intelligence, His main research interests are multi-agent systems. We will discuss those and his upcoming book, A Brief History of Artificial Intelligence, what it is, where we are, and where we are going. I can tell you in advance that it is a fascinating, deeply thought-provoking interview. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at aindyou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.